Our Father and our God in heaven, we pray that in these few moments as we reflect upon the experience of our Savior, that our own hearts would be enlightened. We recall how your Apostle Paul prayed to the Colossians that they might grow in the knowledge of the Savior. And may we in these few moments grow in our knowledge of him. And may our hearts be forever changed because of your grace. Amen. Our text tells us that the Passover came to an end with the singing of a traditional hymn that would have been part of what is known as the Hallel Sims, hymns, psalms, culminating in Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, there is this remarkable phrase which is repeated at Passover every year in Jewish homes. The stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. Isaiah chapter 28 talks about a precious cornerstone. And those who trust in that cornerstone will not panic, literally. Those who trust in him will have life. When I became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ over 50 years ago, the prophet Isaiah was very important to me. As I searched the words of Isaiah, I realized how incredibly accurate he had portrayed the ministry of the Messiah. But here in our text, Jesus is quoting the prophet Zechariah. And he quotes Zechariah and says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And he has just spoken to his disciples, hasn't he? And told them that they would all defect. Even Peter, who was the first to confess Jesus, would be the first to deny him. The Lord Jesus adds something to Zechariah's prophecy, which is not in the original text, and it's the pronoun I. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Because the Lord Jesus knew that it was not simply men who were bringing him to the cross, but his heavenly Father. As Isaiah himself had said in his prophecy in chapter 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And yet uh, the prophecy of Zechariah stands clear and very powerfully. It may interest you to know that Zechariah is one of the most important of all the Messianic prophets. We're all familiar with the entrance of Jesus on the foal of a donkey, which is found in Zechariah and which is quoted on Palm Sunday. But there are several other wonderful prophecies in Zechariah as well. And I just mentioned them to you in passing, should you like to check them out for yourself. There's the betrayal for 30 shekels of silver. There's the word that he will be a priest upon his throne. That they will look on me whom they have pierced. 
and mourn as if for an only son. There will be a fountain of cleansing open to the house of Israel for sin and uncleanness. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. All these are found in Zechariah. Worth studying to learn more of the Lord Jesus Christ and his fulfillment. Jesus is at a place called Gethsemane. It's from the Aramaic, Gatshemen, which means literally an oil press. But on this particular night, this place, which was well known to Jesus and his disciples, would not be known for the pressing of oil. It would be known for the pressing of our Savior. As he struggles to accept that which he told his disciples at the beginning of Matthew 26, that the Son of Man must be delivered unto crucifixion. And he likens his experience to a cup which we be given to him. We know the word cup in the Old Testament. Perhaps the thing that comes to us most frequently is David's wonderful 23rd Psalm, how the cup of blessing overflows to the psalmist. But in most cases, the word cup doesn't have that positive expression in the Old Testament. It has the idea of judgment, the idea of wrath. In Jeremiah 25, the cup of God's wrath is the destiny of the godless. And even if they don't want to take it, they must take it. It is forced upon them by God. In Isaiah 63, the prophet says prophetically, I have trodden the winepress alone. And again in Isaiah, you have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath, and who is it that will comfort you? Well, certainly not Jesus' disciples that night, for they fall asleep as he seeks his father, crying, Abba, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. David had prophesied in Psalm 38, my friends and my companions stand back from my affliction and all my kinsmen stand afar off. And we read in chapter 26, verse 39 of Matthew, that Jesus falls on his face in prayer falls on his face in prayer. That face that had brightened the lives of so many people, that face that restored the, the deaf and the blind and the cripple who had pronounced forgiveness for sins, that face that had brightened so many lives, who had been the fulfillment of Aaron's hope when he pronounced the great benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord live up the light of his face upon you and give you his peace. That fulfillment is in Jesus. He is the one whose face brings all that blessing to those who trust in him. We realize that in the midst of this difficulty, an angel came to Jesus' aid. We read this in Luke's Gospel in chapter 22. 
We might say, oh, good, an angel. Now Jesus will get out of this terrible situation. But no, the angel just came to strengthen him. I'd love to know what that angel said to Jesus to encourage him in those moments of great stress. It would be an interesting dialogue, I'm sure. But we read in Luke 22, verse 44, that in agony, Jesus prayed all the more earnestly. And so the angel came not to liberate Jesus from that moment, but to strengthen his resolve. Great preacher of many generations ago, John Flavel, imagined what the dialogue could have been like between the father and his son when he made the compact for the redemption of humanity. Here you may suppose the father says to the son, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have undone themselves utterly and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. And what shall be done for these souls? And Jesus responds, O oh, my Father, such is my love and pity for them that rather than they should perish everlastingly, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them in that there may be no after-reckonings with them. And at my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. But, my son, if thou undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. There will be no abatements. If I spare them, I cannot spare you. Content, Father, let it be. Charge it all to me. I'm able to discharge it, and though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Content to undertake it. And yet there was little contentment there at Gethsemane for the Savior. We read in verse 37 that he was greatly distressed and troubled. That word troubled is found again in Mark chapter 14 in a parallel account where we might translate horror and dismay came over him. The closest idea to that word which is used only here in the New Testament in those two places for troubled may be found in Jeremiah 25 where as the result of the cup of wrath men will stagger and be crazed. In other words, they'll be close to mental disintegration because of the horror of it all. Isaiah opened his prophecies by saying, the whole head is sick. 
the whole heart is faint. And he's speaking of Israel. But now this prophecy relates to the new Israel, the one who is taking Israel unto himself and identifying with Israel. I think of Shakespeare's greatest tragedy, King Lear. And King Lear is on the heath in a driving rain. And he says, my, my mind my mind is not functioning all that well. And his thoughts go to those who are poor and unfortunate. And he says, poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall you be defended from seasons such as these? Lear, who is preoccupied with his own problems for a moment, thinks of those who are less fortunate, and his heart goes out to them. Isaiah, in chapter 63, says, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Who shall take care of the poor, the wretches, wherever they be? Why, it is Jesus who undertakes for them in their severe affliction. And that severe affliction is nothing other than sin. Great poet George Herbert, again going back a number of generations, says, Who would know sin? Let him repair unto Mount Olivet. There shall he see a man so wrung with pains that all his hair, his skin, his garments bloody be. Sin is that press and vice which forceth pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. Now, friends, we know from this text in Matthew that it was Jesus' will not to drink the cup of suffering. For he asks his father three times if it might be possible to have the cup removed. He knew that the cross was inevitable if he, were, if he was going to redeem humanity. And yet it is not possible that human, holy humanity would will to drink the cup of divine punishment for sin. Many men could be obedient unto death, but holy humanity could never want to be obedient to divine judgment it runs contrary to the nature of the person. And yet, through the darkness and the dregs of this bitter wine, Jesus has what perhaps C.S. Lewis would call a visionary gleam. And Hebrews chapter 12 tells us what it is. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross Scorning at shame. It was that love for humanity that enabled him, as Isaiah 52, 14 says, to be marred beyond human semblance. And friends, that's the reason why he can help you and me. 
because as Hebrews 5 verse 7 tells us, he knew loud crying and tears. He was 100% human. He wasn't human sprinkled with a little divine, little divinity. He was a real man for real man. A real person who knew what it was to suffer as a man. Luke tells us his sweat became like great drops of blood. Again, George Herbert goes on in his poem, The Agony. Who knows not love? Let him assay that juice which on a cross a pike did set again the brooch. And let him say if ever he did taste the like, love is that liquor sweet and most divine which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Set again a brooch. These words may be hard for us in contemporary English, but what the poet is saying is that it wasn't just on the cross, it wasn't just on Golgotha that the blood fl flowed from Jesus. It was, at, it was at Gethsemane too that the blood flowed from the Savior as his sweat became like blood, drops of blood. Jesus suffered much more than we'll ever know, as we have said so many times. That uh, existentialist, uh, a Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard, in his journals has a prayer. And the prayer is directed to the Lord Jesus. And he says, Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered all life long that I too may be saved, and he continues, this patient suffering of me with whom thou hast to do, I who so often go astray. And Kierkegaard is making the point that it wasn't even just Golgotha or Gethsemane, but it was throughout his life that he suffered for us. And so he reaches a conclusion. The opposite of sin is not righteousness. The opposite of sin is faith. And so as Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 6, so in all circumstances take up the shield of faith. How shall we know that we are among these people for whom Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died? Through his gift to us, his gift of life. In St. Matthew's Passion, that great work by Bach, there's a chorus that addresses Christ in these words. Hope and love and faith and patience 
all were purchased by thy blood. And that's a cause for a good hope for us today, isn't it? And why we gather here on this extraordinary day, a day which only the adjective good could define, to remember what Jesus Christ accomplished and what his blood accomplished for us and gives to us hope and love and faith and patience. It's interesting going back to that Zechariah 13 text where we read, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But as the prophet goes on, he says, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. In affection, God will give grace to these who have turned away, who have defected, Peter and the others with him. And you and for me too, God gives his grace to us as we turn to Jesus Christ and look to him. Isn't that what Hebrews is telling us to do when the author writes in Hebrews 4, let us boldly approach the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help us in times of need. It's a wonderful thing to know that he always hears us. His hand is always extended towards us in affection. He has never had an unkind word for you, an unkind thought but has always been passionately for us. Isn't that what Colossians tells us? In him all things hold together, and we were made by him and for him. He is for us because we are for him. We are for him. He is for us. In these times of difficulty, I was glad to see a little note from one of our elderly ladies who is not able to be with us, but whom we honored recently here along with her husband, who had been an elder here for so many years. And she said her favorite text was from Zechariah. Maybe some of you noticed this. Zechariah 14, verse 7. And there shall be a unique day, a day which is known only to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there will be light. The day of the Lord is coming, friends. Rejoice and be glad in what Christ has done for us. Amen.